I am poor and needy. This is a stock phrase of David's. It is one that he uses frequently throughout the Psalms. I am poor and needy, and beyond the use of the phrase itself, the idea that is described by it is found throughout this psalm and throughout the Psalter as a whole. And it begs a question, a question or two, does David suffer from an acute case of low self-esteem? Is David bipolar? And I don't mean that in any kind of a joking way. I mean in terms of the heights of what we see, expressions of joy that are articulated in the Psalms, down to the depths, I'm poor and needy. How do we make sense of these fluctuations that take place here? Maybe David just needs some medication, or perhaps what he needs is a good pep talk. Don't think of yourself that way, David. Well, I was uh, sick a couple of weeks ago, struggling with a uh, head cold. And while I was sick, I was uh, sucking on some cough drops. And it wasn't enough that the cough drops uh, helped to ease my throat. They also included these these exhortational pick-me-ups. It's a new thing for cough drops. At least it was a new thing to me. And I saved them here uh, so that I could give you this encouragement. Uh, uh, I'm not going to say whose cough drops they are, but if you want them afterwards, you can have them. All right, so so here are some of the things that uh, that they say. Sorry. Uh, High five yourself. Bet on yourself. Put a little strut in it. Put your game face on. Let's hear your battle cry. You can do it, and you know it. Get through it. And by the way, it says a pep talk in every drop. Oops. All right, and one more, or a couple more. Power through. Nothing you can't handle. Take charge and mean it. Push on. Don't give up on yourself. I'll save them right here in my pocket for you. Maybe this is really all that David needed. Enough of this I'm a loser kind of talk that David seems so prone to doing. David, pick it up a little bit. Think more highly of yourself than that. After all, you've killed a lot of people. You defeated a lot of enemies. You killed Goliath. You're not a loser. Trite idioms and a cough drop. Maybe they will soothe our soul. Maybe. Maybe not. The psalm uh, pattern here, the things that are, are structuring this psalm are very familiar to us. I had a temptation to try and make it creative, but I, I resisted it because Resisting it in this case allows us to get to the simplicity of what is being described here. Basically, we have two ideas. One is, who am I? I being here, David. Who am I? And who is God being the second one? If I'm this, who is God? And then, how do you respond to who am I and who is God? And the answer is help. Okay? Who am I? Who is God? Help. In the care and development of our souls, and that's what we've been focusing on. If you're just joining us today, we're considering our souls through the Psalms. An indispensable and core component of care for our own souls is, what do I really think of myself? How do I view me? 
And this is actually a really biblically complex question, depending on what part of Scripture, what passage of Scripture we had opened before us, we might answer that in any number of ways. For example, if we had the early chapters of Genesis open before us, we might say that I'm an image bearer of God, or another passage we might say, who I really am is I'm a worshiper of God. I'm an heir with Christ. I'm a son of God. Those are all things that we might say about ourselves biblically, or negatively speaking, if we had some other psalm open before us, as we did a couple of weeks ago, we might say that I'm a sinner. That's who I am before God. But the emphasis of this particular psalm is seeing ourselves as deeply dependent beings. Now, to be sure, our sinfulness is a component of our dependency upon God, but it is not the entirety of our dependency upon God. Look at the first few verses here for a moment with me. I'm not going to read these. I would ask you to look at them, and I'm going to describe for us the need. What is David looking for out of what he is praying here? So as you look at these, what David needs is someone to listen. Incline your ear to me. Someone to help. Someone to preserve his life. He needs salvation, save your servant. He needs grace. He needs, again, someone to listen. He needs someone to give him gladness. Down to verse 5, he needs goodness. He needs forgiveness. He needs love. He needs, again, someone to listen to him. Verse 6, he needs, again, someone to listen to him. He needs grace. The end of verse 6, listen to my plea for grace. He needs help. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. He needs mercy. I'm sure that you noticed when I read those cough drop motivationals for us that all of those motivationals are rooted in self. They were all about stirring up something within me. They're all internally based And even though they're cutesy and the cough drop maker is no doubt making a little bit of a joke here uh, about those things, I, I get it. But at the same time, we have to see that that is exactly the opposite of what David is trying to do in this psalm. David is not trying to conjure up some inner fortitude to soothe his aching soul, to relieve his situation. Instead, he is taking his soul, his life, the circumstances that are around him, and he's acknowledging his fundamental position with relation to all of that. And his fundamental position is, I am a poor and needy servant. I'm a servant. I'm the son of a servant. You are my master, my Lord, and I need your help. As a servant, I'm coming to my Lord, and I'm asking you for help. 
Now, I don't want you to get tripped up on one particular verse that is in here, verse 2, because you, you could read verse 2 in a different way. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. That could sound to us, if we read it in isolation, like David is trying to ascribe some intrinsic right to the help of God based upon what he has done. Instead, what David is trying to say is, I'm in relationship with you. I I have this bond with you, this servant-master bond, and beyond that, I have a covenant bond that exists with you. So when he says here, I am godly, that is the same word that describes God's steadfast love towards us. So what David is really trying to say is, I'm, I'm loyal to you. You're, you're loyal to me. I'm loyal to you. I'm faithful to you. I'm in relationship to you. And the last phrase there in that verse, you are my God. David can say, you are my God, because it is the covenant God who said in the preface to the Ten Commandments that we read just earlier, I am your God. And now you can respond with, you are my God. So this is a relational confession that David is making in verse 2, a relational appeal. So, do you acknowledge yourselves, do you think of yourselves in your heart of hearts as poor and needy? Now, be careful before you answer that question too quickly by saying yes. It is not easy for us to acknowledge ourselves as poor and needy. We like the idea of being a self-made people. That resonates well, at least with our flesh, to think that I have achieved the status, the position that I have in life because of the work that I put into it. And the fact of the matter is, to speak plainly, Many of you sitting in this room are successful. Successful not only with relationship to our culture in particular, you've done well, but certainly successful in relationship to what the rest of the world experiences, what the rest of the world has, and that's good. It is a blessing from God, and it is is extremely hazardous for our souls for the obvious reason it's easy then to trust in ourselves and 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 to consider oneself poor and needy is not, it's not just counterculture for americans it's it's just counter to our human instincts ever since the very first sin We have enshrined the idea that we can be independent in getting what we want, in seeking after the best in this world. But the Son of Man, Jesus, came clothed in humility. And he said to us, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek. Who am I? I'm poor and needy. Who is God? Well, what can we say here from this psalm? You can say a lot about who God is from this psalm. He is the one who listens. 
How many times in the psalm is David asking, please hear me? God is the one who listens, the one in whom is life, the one who can gladden the soul. He is the source. He is the resource for every need that David has, for every need that you have. He is underived, self-existent, the eternal I am, the one who doesn't need anything from anyone for his contentment. He's the refuge from every trouble and the comforter for every anguish that David, that we experience. And the words that describe God here, the ones that are so familiar to us, are piled one upon another, and they are the liturgical confession of the people of God, age after age after age, millennia after millennia. This is what the people of God confess about him, and they are lifted from the events and the revelation of God throughout history. So take, for example, and I'm sure you recognize this as I was reading it, verses 5 and 15. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all that call upon you. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David, where'd you get that idea? Well, I got that idea from God's revelation of himself to Moses, who was in the cleft of the rock while God passed before him and declared his own identity. And the words are exactly the words that are used in both of the same places right here. Or take verse 8. Verse 8, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like you, yours. That comes from the song that was sung by the people on the far side of the Red Sea after they had crossed over. This is an individual psalm of lament, and yet it is ascribing great things to God. David, in his individualness, is recounting the greatness of God, the wonders of what God has done, and he even goes so far as to consider the very plans of God and the greatness of them. So David is not only looking out for his enemies to be shamed, which is contained in verse 17, let them be shamed, my enemies, not only looking for their defeat and his deliverance, the deliverance of Israel, but there's this little phrase that is tucked into this psalm, plopped right in the middle of it, verse 9 that is there. He's a solitary man praying for help, desperate about his own soul, and in the midst of that, he realizes that God is up to something big. And the bigness of what God is up to is going to minister to David in his particular little circumstances, whatever those circumstances and however big they may have seemed to him. And that's what we read in verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So this seemingly small, intimate focus on the soul of one man and the circumstances of one man connects to the great global purposes of God to collect a people from all of the nations of the earth to worship him. 
And that little phrase, which you might be tempted to read right by because it's a psalm of lament after all, that little phrase gets taken up in the book of Revelation and it becomes the song of the Lamb. So in Revelation, they sing a song that sounds a lot like this song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. A little phrase, a little guy praying somewhere. And it gets swallowed up in these great plans of God. The great and sovereign Father is doing wondrous things with and through poor and needy souls. As with David, so with Jesus. So, who am I? I am the servant. Who is God? He is the Lord. He is the master. And in light of that, what is the plea of this psalm? And in a word, the plea of the psalm is one thing, help. The degree to which, the frequency frequency with which we say, help me, may be, in fact, some indicator of how we view ourselves. The entire psalm is a cry for help. We are fragile beings who have little sense of our own frailty until something happens to remind us of it. The hymn says, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. Y'all know that uh, I enjoy basketball. And in the NBA, I'm not going to say any names or anything like that just for, for, uh, (laughs) I don't want to confuse anybody who could care less about the NBA. Uh, But over the past two weeks, uh, two of the bright stars in the NBA have gotten hurt. And of course, these are young guys in the prime of their life, in the strength of their life. They've got everything going for them, every training you could get. And one got injured as he was running down the court trying to play defense on a guy. And he's not watching because he's kind of going backwards. And a guy right behind him slips on the ground, slides across the ground. And when you're playing basketball and you slide across the ground, that means you leave sweat all across the wood. The next guy coming behind doesn't see it. His foot hits it. He slides, hits his knee, and is out. Stupid. The other guy was, again, playing defense on a guy and just kind of swinging his hand in playing defense, got his finger, caught in the guy's shirt, and broke the finger. Out. Team lost the next two games. They're out of the playoffs as as quickly as that. Goofy, stupid little things that reveal our frailty in a second. In a second. And, of course, there are examples that are so much bigger than those. David owns his frailty. His comprehensive feebleness. Alternatively, he characterizes his enemies like this. They are, verse 14, insolent men, ruthless. They do not set you before them. They're prideful and they're arrogant. They're the opposite 
in other words. They're serious, I'm sorry to use the basketball analogy again, they're serious trash talkers. And that's why David wants them shamed. They don't understand who they truly are before God. Frail and feeble, woe to us if we feign, if we portray to our own selves and to others that we are independent, sufficient, imperturbable in this world, and blessed be those who strip themselves of any supposed sufficiency and cry out to God for mercy and for help. One writer, a commenter on this passage says that those are wise who disavow all self-sufficiency and claim the right of help that belongs to the helpless. As an example of this, I mean, David has all sorts of examples that we could look at here, but as one example of it in verses 11 and 12, David was wise, and yet David prays, teach me your way. He doesn't rest on his own intelligence, on his own already wisdom. Teach me your way. And even though David is described as a man after God's own heart, he implores in this verse, unite my heart to fear your name. I have a divided heart. It's in pieces all over the place. It goes after all sorts of different things. It has affections that get attached to one thing, and then they get attached to another thing before I even realize it. Unite my heart, God. Bring it back together so that I can give thanks to you, so that I can glorify you with a whole heart. David is praying, in effect, a prayer of the new covenant. Give me a new heart, O oh God. Put a new spirit in me so that I can serve you with a whole heart, with renewed service and worship. I know that I keep going back to Calvin for great quotes in this series on the Psalms, but he really is great on the Psalms, if a little wordy. Uh, and he's commenting in this section that I'm about to read for you on the, the fact that this prayer seems to repeat itself several times throughout the prayer, and he's reflecting on that. And he says this, The saints do not indeed always pray with a loud voice, but their secret sighs and groanings resound and echo upwards and, ascending from their hearts, penetrate even into heaven. The inspired suppliant, David, not only represents himself as crying, but as persevering in doing so to teach us that he was not discouraged at the first or second encounter but continued in prayer with untiring earnestness. In the following verse, he expresses more definitely the end for which he besought God to be merciful to him, which was that his sorrow might be removed. 
And he kept coming to God and coming to God and coming to him again, asking that the sorrow be removed. He continues, nor is this repetition of the same requests to be thought superfluous, for hereby the saints by little and little discharge their cares into the bosom of God, and this importunity is a sacrifice of sweet savor before him. Importunity, maybe a word we're not as familiar with, a child who keeps coming and asking you the same thing over and over and over, and you get tired of it. That's importunity. This importunity is a sacrifice of a sweet savor, savor before him. The Father loves it. I am poor and needy. Cough drop comfort and aphorisms will not do. David does not need medication. And that's not to say that some people don't need medication. It is to say, however, that in this case, David isn't incorrect or over the top in his self-diagnosis. He's painfully accurate. He is correct. I am poor and needy for those who will embrace that fundamental and perpetual identity in their souls and in your heart of hearts cry out to the Lord, then here's the promise. In due time, he will raise you up and you will be comforted. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. True for Jesus and in him, true for us. We don't grow out of being poor and needy. We mature in our faith. And as we mature in our faith, we grow into being poor and needy. That coat begins to fit as we mature in Christ. 